This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, it's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Okay, I had Mike DeYoung on the show today. Yeah, very interesting. We, the liberal MLA in Abbotsford, the former Attorney General, and he has endorsed Pierre Poiliev taking some heat for doing it from the NDP. I spoke to an NDP MLA on the show yesterday, ripped into him Grace Laura. for doing this. So we had De Jong responding to that today, and I asked him, why is he endorsing Polyev? Here's what he had to say. I have been pretty concerned about uh, some economic matters, uh, perpetual deficits that seem to be uh, embraced now at the, the national and provincial level, spiraling debt, increased inflation, uh, rising interest rates. And, and I've been waiting for a national leader to come along who's prepared to talk about those things, talk about their importance, uh, and talk about what the longer-term implications are for Canadians. And uh, Polyev's the only guy that's been prepared to do it and has the courage to do it. Is it Mike DeYoung, the Liberal MLA, and his endorsement for Polyev? Your Long, thoughts? Longest-serving MLA in the House, elected yeah. in 94, a veteran, as you say, former Attorney General, former Finance Minister. Yeah. Grace Laurie, you had on the NDP MLA for the writing we're in right now, uh, Victoria Beacon Hill, yesterday saying that um, it's one thing to back Polyev's deficit position, but quite another not to address some of his more controversial positions, which is fairly far right. And it's going to be interesting when the House comes back and Kevin Falcon emerges, he's going to be asked about this. Yeah, He's going to be asked about a member of senior member of his caucus uh, endorsing Pierre Poliev. The BC Liberals are a coalition party. They yeah. don't get into federal politics. They, they stay away from this stuff because it's divisive. Pierre Poliev, uh, now, the B.C. Liberal Caucus is far more conservative than it was under Gordon Campbell, which had a much more liberal uh, tinge to it. But it's going to be interesting as they try to keep this coalition together, whether or not a senior member of the caucus's endorsement of a fairly controversial right-wing politician upsets that coalition. I'm not saying it will, but it's just it's it's an interesting dynamic that we haven't seen before. Well, Kevin Falcon's considered kind of a right-wing politician he, here in British Columbia. He is, but he's trying He's if you... You and I have both known Kevin Falcon since the 90s, and you remember he was very right-wing in the 90s as the organizer of um, Total Recall, I think it was yeah. called. But then when he became a cabinet minister, he was fairly – he moderated his views. He yeah. wasn't a right-wing health minister. Yeah. He wasn't a right-wing uh, finance minister because he realized he was in a coalition. And I, right now, I don't see any evidence that Kevin Falcon is skewing to the right. He's talking about child care. He's talking about these affordability issues for suburban voters. So this is an interesting move by um, – by Diong and you and I talked mused yesterday about whether this was just his uh, his uh, launching pad to get into federal politics, and I know you asked him about that. I did. I did ask Mike Diong, is he planning to make a jump into federal politics here, maybe run for the Conservatives if Polyev becomes the leader? So let's have a listen to that and have what he had to say here, Mike Diong. The the short answer is uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I've been in public life a long time, uh, and I uh, and I honestly don't know. You're a member of the Federal Conservative Party, though, is that right? Uh, uh, for, I'm uh, on my third day, Mike. 
Yeah, okay. So he just wow. signed he just signed a Conservative Party membership card, joined the party, did not rule out running wow, for the Conservative. That's, that's very interesting. For him to say he hasn't ruled it out um, means he's very close to ruling it in. I would think so. I think um, Ed Fast is the member out in Abbotsford. Um, there's talk that he's retiring. He's not going to seek another term. Um, the prospects of the B.C. Liberals forming power again in the next election are somewhat questionable, given the, the huge win the NDP had last time and the inroads the NDP has made in places like Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Langley, and Surrey. Uh, perhaps he's viewing uh, the prospect of coming back to power is not that great and maybe wants a different taste of politics, which is the federal level. I suspect that B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon would probably prefer that guys like DeYoung and, and others, uh, MLAs in the caucus, stay out of this federal thing, maybe keep their mouth shut. But a guy like DeYoung might be, might be thinking to himself, I don't really care. Like, I'm maybe leaving anyway, so I'm going to say what I think. Certainly, certainly seems that way. Uh, as I say, he's been, he's the, uh, well, he's the longest continuous serving member. He's the second long, second in seniority. Mike, uh, Mike Farnworth was here in 91, yeah. but then he had that uh, timeout between 2001 and, and 05. But DeYoung's been here the whole time. Yeah. So he may be looking for uh, new uh, challenges, which would be the federal, uh, uh, politics and maybe he doesn't care whether or not uh, how anybody feels in the yep. caucus yeah okay it's fascinating though that's one to watch for sure and now we also talked about the, the current status of contract negotiations between the public sector unions in bc and the government uh sides seem to be far apart oh they're far apart <laughs> oh yeah yesterday on the show stephanie smith the president yep. of the bc geu union said they're getting ready to take a strike vote Today, I spoke to Mina Brassard from the Hospital Employees Union. She is the chief negotiator for that union with the government. And here's what she had to say to me this morning. Cost of living protections are critical uh, to achieving a renewed collective agreement, and compensation is a critical piece. And uh, the initial monetary proposal that's been tabled uh, by health employers uh, falls uh, way short uh, of a fair compensation package. Yeah, so they're looking for that at least, it sounds like they're looking for at least that 5% raise five, or even higher. 5% a year, so 10% over two years. The government's countering with 3.75% uh, over two years and a $1,000 signing bonus. Yeah. Um, so the, again, in terms of dollars, they're far apart. I mean, it, if you assume all the unions are on the singing from the same song sheet, which I think they are, in fact... The Hospital Employees Union, the BC Teachers Federation, QP, the Health Sciences Association, and the BCGU all took out a joint ad a couple of weeks ago in the yeah. newspapers, all saying saying the same thing. So they seem to have a common front, and they seem to have the same offer on the table. And the government, as, as is usually the case, the government's offer to public sector unions is basically the same for all unions, with a couple of tweaks here and there for the unique circumstances each sector finds itself in. So they're, uh, my estimation, over two years, they're about, overall, about $2 billion apart over two years. And that's a, a significant amount of money. Now, as I've mentioned before, there's a lot of money in the in the uh, NDP fiscal plan over three years that is unallocated. Contingency funds and forecast allowance run in the neighborhood of $13 billion. But isn't that the money they need to like, fight forest yeah. fires and floods? And yeah, it's, the, it's for contingencies. Yeah, yeah but uh, there's more than enough to cover wildfires and floods. There is a big sum of money in there that is clearly earmarked for public sector contracts. There's 182 contracts that expired March 31st, or most of them did, 393,000 employees. So this is a massive amount of money. But there's a lot of money in the, in the, in the, liberal, in the NDP budget. I also 
my analysis of the budget is I think they've underestimated, I think Finance Minister Selena Robinson, as is the tradition of all finance ministers, has underestimated revenues that are forecast to come in. So there is going to be money there for settlement. Is it 5%? I kind of doubt that. I wouldn't be surprised to see a 3 or 4% a year uh, settlement and a bigger signing bonus than $1,000. What about the fact that this is an NDP government, a labor-friendly mm-hmm. government? You know, unions actually have representation on the NDP yep. board. Uh, there's a lot of former labor activists and union leaders that are members of the NDP caucus that transition into politics. Does that typically mean that an NDP government is more willing to give the unions what they want? Well, I think there's no question the NDP government is more friendly to, to unions than, than the BC Liberals. But we've seen the BC NDP not acquiesce to a number of activist positions. For example, the NDP members of the caucus were against the Site C dam yeah, construction. Yeah. Lana Popham, for example, Katrina, uh, other members of the caucus were, were vehement. Michelle Mungle was one of the um, members of the caucus who opposed the Sicy Dam. She became energy minister and so became an was, advocate of the dam. So your point there is sometimes if they're activists... I think, outside of government, and they change their positions. Yes, and I think yeah. this this government, having covered the '90s NDP government, and compare it to this 90, this version of the NDP government, this NDP government is less uh, adherent to its activist roots and its positions in opposition than the '90s were. The '90s were very much captured, I think, by special interest groups, and this this government's uh, not showing any evidence of that. So, I think they're going to take a tougher line in, in negotiations. I don't think they're going to go to a five percent, but it's going to be more than what the government's got on the table right now. Let me ask you about some sad news we heard this morning with the passing away of Jim Hume, oh, the yeah. former long-serving newspaper columnist with the Victoria Times columnist. He passed away in hospital, age ninety-eight. Ripe old age. Uh, You know, you and I have both known him for a long time. I was very sad to hear that news this morning. Real great, sort of old fashioned newspaper guy. Oh yeah, no, um, or you know, almost curmudgeonly when he was yeah. when he was in the gallery. Uh, great guy, very generous yeah. in his time and his advice over the years, particularly to younger journalists. I met him in '87. Uh, yeah, um, Les Lane of the Times, Collins Vaughn Palmer, the son, and I would have lunch with him on his birthday every year for the last few years before the pandemic. We go to the Union Club. Yeah, Jim would regale us with um, with tales of his career. Now he's also he was the patriarch of a journalistic dynasty. You know, Mark Hume, yes. uh, who I worked with at the Vancouver Sun, later worked for the Globe and Mail. Stephen Hume, who yeah. was a, a, a columnist with um, with the Vancouver Sun for a number of years. Uh, so the Hume, and then Nick, his, son, his youngest son, is a paramedic, yeah. was holding his hand at 3 a.m. this morning when he passed at uh, Royal Jubilee Hospice this wow. morning. Wow. So 98 years old, legendary journalism career, and he'll be missed. Yeah, for sure. He was. A, I really admired him, too. He was a very generous guy. And he, did, he had this kind of crusty exterior, but when you got into the bar having a, a pint of beer with him or whatever, last he, time he, was, I, he was as sweet as pie. Oh, yeah. And last time I saw him was at Government House when uh, Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin had the press gallery up, as she does, as Lieutenant Governors do for a social occasion. In her case, it's a pub night. We're in the basement shooting pool, playing pool, uh, shooting, uh, playing darts. And having a pint or two, and Jim was was there uh, regaling everyone with uh, with a lot of stories. Yeah, okay. Sympathies to his family and friends mm-hmm. there, Jim. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, phone lines are open. Keith Baldry is my guest, 604-280-9898, star 9898 in your cell. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev, go ahead. Hi, so I, I'm a union negotiator. I sit down with the government. And the first thing I say to the uh, government representative is, your boys just voted themselves retroactive pay increases, nice big fat chunk of change. Why can't my people have the same thing? This government mm-hmm. has no credibility whatsoever after what they did to themselves. Okay, so the, thank you for the call. So the caller is speaking about this balanced budget law that was on the books where if the government's budget was in deficit, cabinet ministers were supposed to get a 10% pay cut. Mm-hmm. The government has now scrapped that, so they get their full salary even though the budget's in deficit. Right? Yeah, well, there's two things. There's also an MLA increase. Uh, yeah. So there's quite apart from the clawback, the 10%. There's also the fact on April 1st, uh, politicians... And isn't, that, isn't that indexed to inflation? Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, it's an optics problem for the government, <laughs> to say the least. Now, of course, the, the amount of compensation that results from an increase for MLAs is minuscule compared to 400,000 unionized workers. So we're talking 87 people versus 400,000. So the numbers are completely apples and oranges, but... It's perfectly legitimate for the unions to raise that uh, that point. Right. That, Wait a minute, you're getting that. Wait a sec, you just got a big cost raise. cost of living. What about yeah. us? So yeah. that's gonna. Now I know I've talked to some of the, on the government side. Point out on some of the public sector employees, particularly the BCGU, they've been allowed to work from home for two years, um, which means no uh, reduced gasoline cost, reduced oh. parking, reduced uh, wear and tear in your automobile, reduced coffee shop visits. That, in fact, the government employees, and this is the, I'm not saying this is my argument, but this is the argument coming back to some of the public sector employees saying, wait a minute, for you two don't need years, that raise. You, you've been able to save a huge amount of money by working from home. Oh, okay. Nick in Alberni. Hi, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah, well, first comment is uh, to all of you folks here in the news business, uh, the passing of Jim Hume. He's yeah. a really great, great guy. He was a neighbor, mm-hmm. Fairfield area of uh, Victoria, and... Uh, He'll definitely be missed. Yes. Uh, the second thing was, uh, if the MLAs are getting raises to do and tied to inflation, I think it's only fair that the employees get the same thing. Thank you, Nick, for the call. Yeah, well, that's certainly an argument at the, at the bargaining table. Um, the counterpoint from the government is saying, wait a minute, if you, our raise amounts to you know a few thousand dollars, your raise amounts to $9.5 billion over three years. So it's going to be a tough set of negotiations here. And well, I think at the end of the day, there's always going to be the proverbial compromise. I suspect the government's going to have to um, jazz up that signing bonus. Union negotiators don't like signing bonuses because it's a one-time payment. It doesn't go into the base it, yeah. it doesn't build over time like a percentage increase does, but it is very alluring to the average worker out there sure. who says, wait a minute, I mean, you're willing to give me $3,000? I can use $3,000 right now. Yeah. And that's what happened with Carol Taylor back uh, a decade ago, more than a decade ago, uh, where she handed out $4,000 che- uh, checks to every public sector worker, and government negotiators realized they didn't really have a counterargument to that. Okay, let's go to Chris on the line in Surrey. Hi, Chris, go ahead. Hi, Mike. I heard your interview with Stephanie, the president of BCGU, on Monday. Um, Keith, 90% of BC years do not work for a union. We haven't had raises in years. It's been five years since I've had a raise. So I don't want more of my tax money, Keith, going to pay for unions. 
I mean, they're just out of touch, and everybody is in the same boat. We're all having to pay mm-hmm. more and more, right? Yeah. So why, why yeah. are unions so special? <clears throat> well, I don't think they're making the argument that they're special. What's changed in this set of negotiations for the first time in decades is there is a significant inflation rate right now. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, uh, year-to-year, food costs are up 8.5%. Uh, for most people, they feel inflation in gas and food. And if you've got food up 8.5%, that is a significant number. So it's the highest number since 81 or 82, I believe. So we haven't had this at, at, at negotiations before. And again, in terms of private sector negotiations, this is a relatively new development. I suspect if a, if a union in the private sector was to go into negotiations tomorrow, they'd be looking at a 5% request, increased request as well. So this is a dynamic that hasn't been there for a long time.